Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 120, Fall of Pitt. In our last episode, we covered events in the American South up to the end of 1761, as the British fought the Cherokee. But now I want to turn back to where we left off a few episodes ago in London. King George II had died. His grandson, George III, was now king. While Pitt thought of himself as indispensable, he did not know just how much the young king disliked him. Pitt was charismatic and brilliant, sure, but George viewed him as dangerous. George liked order and structure. He believed in absolute truths and regular habits. He searched for order in a world of chaos. Now, compare this to Pitt. Pitt had once been part of the Lesser House faction, and criticised George II's obsession with Hanover. Then he formed his alliance with Newcastle, and disregarded his former principles as they were no longer useful. He sought to protect Hanover, and sent British money and troops to serve in the Continental War. He shook off the Lester House faction, and ignored the advice of Bute. George was watching, and took Pitt to be untrustworthy. The young king set out to be a father to his country, and to stand above party politics, unlike his grandfather, who had been under the thumb of the Whig grandees. His first priority was to bring an end to the war. Pitt convinced George that the war was necessary and couldn't just be abandoned, but George was determined to end it at the first possible moment, and if Pitt could be thrown out of power at the same time, then all the better. There was an immediate power struggle as Bute wanted the position of Chancellor of the Exchequer, which was currently held by Newcastle. Pitt made it clear that if Newcastle, or indeed any member of his cabinet, were removed, he would quit. Pitt was, at this point, the most successful war leader in British history. There was no way he could leave, so he won. But he earned Bute's enmity. Bute was given a ceremonial title and was allowed into cabinet meetings, but Bute became convinced that the only thing standing between him and true power was the popularity of Pitt, and so he was determined to bring down the great commoner. Bute's entry into the cabinet changed things greatly. Bute wanted peace, making him an unexpected ally of Newcastle. While the war was going well, it was extremely expensive. We'll get into the cost of the thing in more detail when a series of British governments try to pay their debt with unpopular taxes, but for the time being, just know that it was expensive, and Newcastle was the person who was raising funds with the men of the city. Things had gone well in the colonies, but the war dragged on in Europe. The British Treasury had paid for the Prussian army to be rebuilt almost every year. Even the small force led by Prince Ferdinand to protect Hanover was costing £10,000 a day, something close to £2 million in today's money. The war was costing £20 million a year, or £4.2 billion in 2010 money. 
For context, taxes each year were bringing on only a third of that amount. The war needed to end soon. Newcastle was concerned about a financial crisis, but when Newcastle came to Pitt with his worries, Pitt's solution was to launch yet more expeditions. Newcastle had an excellent relationship with George II, but now that that source of stability was gone, he acted out. In February 1761, Pitt was temporarily immobilised by gout, and Newcastle went to the king, suggesting that the Earl of Holderness, the Secretary of State for the Northern Department, be removed and replaced by Butte. The king jumped at the chance to give Butte a real place in the cabinet, but the move was strange. Only a few months ago, Pitt had threatened to resign when there was talk of Newcastle being removed from office, and Newcastle conspired with the man who wanted his job to remove one of Pitt's closest allies from the cabinet. I mean, sure, Holderness was useless, but he was Pitt's ally, and he didn't even talk to Pitt about it. This pretty much broke the alliance between Pitt and Newcastle that kept the ministry going. The best reason we can give to Newcastle for doing this is that he wanted to help end the war, but while he wanted to sustain Prussia long enough to achieve an honourable peace, this didn't really match with his financial worries, and Butte was happy to throw Prussia and the German states under the bus. In March 1761, the French inquired about a formal peace being reached, with a clear implication they would reach a separate peace. Pitt and Newcastle didn't want to do this, but did agree to exchange diplomats. The French were willing to surrender Canada, but a sticking point was that Pitt wanted the Newfoundland fisheries. This was more valuable than the Canadian fur trade. It was also seen as a centre for building a future navy. In effect, Pitt wanted the French to surrender the Atlantic. Everyone else was alarmed, knowing that the international order would think Britain was aiming at global domination, much as Louis XIV once had. This image wasn't helped by Pitt's intentions for the war in Europe that year. Pitt had planned to continue to launch raids on the French coast from Belle Isle, but this alarmed Newcastle and Butte who thought it might convince the French to drag the Spanish into the war. While this worried Newcastle, thinking always of the cost, Pitt was positively salivating at the prospect of attacking Spanish colonial holdings. It seemed as though nothing would stop Pitt as long as there was an opportunity for Britain to expand. The worries of the cabinet came to pass, and in August 1761, Spain and France reached an alliance that said if the war had not been concluded by May 1762, the Spanish would join the war on the French side. The hope was that this would force the British to go to the bargaining table, but it merely strained relationships. Since things were going nowhere, Pitt felt there was no point in waiting for the Spanish to join the war when they were ready, and argued for a preemptive strike. But the cabinet would not go with him. Butte pointed out the diplomatic implications. 
Pitt's military assistants, Anson and Legionnaire, did not think that the British could win a war against both France and Spain, while Newcastle argued that the British couldn't afford it. Without cabinet support, Pitt went behind their backs to the king directly, which offended George, who already viewed Pitt as a schemer, and he refused to accept the report which Pitt prepared. The critical moment came on October 2nd. Pitt made the case for war with Spain. All but one cabinet member, his brother-in-law, Earl Temple, opposed him. Pitt took the news calmly, thanked the ministers, and three days later resigned, with Temple soon following. Mentally drained after the past few years, Pitt broke down in tears when the king thanked him for his service. He was rewarded for his service with a pension, while his wife was given a peerage as Baroness Chatham, allowing him to stay in the Commons. Bute leaked the information that Pitt, the great commoner, was taking a royal pension, lessening his ability to claim the high ground should he end up in opposition. A minor cabinet reshuffle followed, although Anson, Legionnaire, Newcastle and Bute all kept their places. Charles Wyndham, the Earl of Egremont, replaced Pitt as Southern Secretary, and George Grenville, another brother-in-law of Pitt, was brought in to lead the government in the Commons. Grenville was not an imaginative leader, but he was a hard worker and good with money. He also had a reputation for incorruptibility that endeared him to George III. With Pitt out of the way, peace talks could continue, while Anson, Legionnaire, and the war minister, Charles Townsend, prepared for the possibility of Spain joining the war. They viewed the most likely action the Spanish would take as invading Portugal. Now, this is something I've been excited about introducing into our narrative for quite a while, the Anglo-Portuguese alliance. It's one of my favourite odd bits of history, so let's get into it. The relationship between England and Portugal is the world's oldest alliance, and in one form or another goes back to 1147. Portugal grew out of the Kingdom of Asturias during the Reconquista in the 9th century, it became part of the Kingdom of Lyon in the 11th century, and declared itself a kingdom in 1139. English crusaders helped out with the capture of Lisbon in 1147, starting a positive relationship that became an alliance, later ratified in the 1386 Treaty of Windsor. There was intermarriage between the two royal families and plenty of trade. There was an interruption during the 60-year Iberian Union, where the crowns of Spain and Portugal were joined, but in 1640, Portugal broke free, and the alliance was resumed. Helped out by both countries' respective rivalries with Spain and the Netherlands. By the 1750s, the two countries were tied together so closely economically that Portugal was practically a British dependency. The British estimated that they'd need 10,000 troops to defend Portugal, this was in addition to the 110,000 already in service. To raise the troops, Legionnaire and Townsend 
resorted to an antiquated practice of offering commissions to country gentlemen who could provide their own battalions. Anderson started preparing potential targets. War against Spain was declared on January the 4th, 1762, less than two months after Pitt resigned because his cabinet would not declare war on Spain to launch a series of colonial adventures. The cabinet declared war on Spain and launched two assaults on Havana and Manila. Oh, the irony. Such irony. Think about the irony. Are you thinking about the irony? Good. I'll leave you to continue thinking about the irony, and in our next episode we'll look at the war with Spain as well as catch up with our old friend Frederick in Prussia. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Thank you.